Cool. So are you ready to go again, yeah? Yep. Right, yeah, whenever you're ready, Paul. Okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of Research at OU Law School. On today's episode, we have a conversation between Paul Troop, a lecturer here at the law school, and Professor Rosemary Hunter for Kemp Law School. They will talk about judicial reasoning, feminism, and the feminist judgment projects, just to name a few. I really enjoyed listening to the discussion, and I hope you will too. So without much further ado, here are Paul and Rosemary. Hello, my name's Paul Troop from the Open University Law School. I'm here with Rosemary Hunter, who is from the University of Kent Law School. She's a professor of law and socio-legal studies, and also one of the co-organisers of the Feminist Legal Judgments Project. R- Rosemary, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Uh, Rosemary, can I ask you to explain what feminism is? Okay, so feminism is a an approach to thinking about the world, thinking about society, which pays attention to gender and gender difference. So it looks at the way in which social arrangements operate differently for men and women, um, treat men and women differently, and very often um, subordinate women to men. Can a male judge be a feminist? Absolutely, yes. Um, So being a feminist um, means having a commitment to or having an interest in or concern about, um, you know, the the groups who have been traditionally excluded from law and legal reasoning and and the development of legal doctrine. And anybody can do that. Um, Anybody can be concerned to produce equality and a more inclusive um, legal body, legal structure. What's the Feminist Judgments Project and and how did it come about? So the project came about from a realisation that feminist theory and feminist legal theory has been very influential in academia, in um, law schools and universities, and I mean feminism more generally has been very influential in the um, development of scholarship and legal scholarship. Um, but it hasn't had very much impact in the outside world, in um, you know the the practice of law, and so we were interested in, I suppose, pushing it further and showing ways in which it could be relevant to and used in um, legal practice and and legal judgments in particular. The idea originally came from um, a group of uh, legal scholars and and legal activists, feminist legal scholars and activists in Canada who had been involved in a, uh, a project which uh, called the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. And that had been set up when the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was originally um, enacted. And their particular interest was in persuading the Supreme Court or, or um, advising the Supreme Court in how the equality guarantees in the Canadian Charter, so the Canadian Charter guarantees Um, rights to equality before and under the law. And LEAF was concerned with um, the interpretation of that section and section 15 of the charter. 
and particularly trying to advance a substantive conception of equality, a, a conception of equality which took into account differences and disadvantages and sought to overcome them. And they had they used to write briefs to intervene in Supreme Court cases that involved um, the concept of equality and they had some initial successes where the court picked up on their arguments. But after a while, they felt that the court had stopped listening to them, um, perhaps had taken the view that equality or that gender issues were now done and there wasn't um, any relevance to what they were speaking about anymore, although they obviously disagreed with that position. And so they hit on the idea of rather, you know, in trying to get the court to pay attention to their arguments, rather than simply writing briefs to intervene in cases, they would show the court how they thought the court should have decided particular cases. So that's where the idea of rewriting judgments from a feminist perspective came from. And the Canadian project was focused solely on cases under Section 15 of the Charter. Um, but we, in um, the project in England and Wales, took the idea of rewriting judgments from a feminist perspective, imagining that there was a feminist judge on the bench um, deciding the case, how would they have decided it? And we applied that to the whole of English law. So we were interested in dealing with cases from any area of law rather than confining ourselves to a particular line of jurisprudence. But that's where the idea originally came from. And it has a very, very distinct practical approach, doesn't it? Um, ordinarily somebody identifies a judgment that may have been given from a certain perspective by non-feminist judges and then they rewrite a particular judgment from their own feminist perspective and sometimes that but, leads to the same result but by a different means and sometimes it leads to a different result, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. So the idea is to write plausible feminist judgments. Um, so it's it's not an argument, it's not an academic essay about the case, it's not um, an article which says, you know, this is why the court was wrong and this is why we think it should be decided differently. It's actually re-deciding the case, um, incorporating the principles and concerns that um, animate the, the feminist judge. So we, we exercise a particular kind of discipline the feminist judge is either sitting on the same court, deciding it the, the case at the same time as the original judges, or they're sitting on an appeal, which is imagined to have been heard fairly soon after the original decision. So they're bound by the same law um, that applied in the original case, the same facts that were available to the original judges, and the same, you know, background information, um, the same state of society um, as was the case when the original decision was made. And so the idea is to show that even under those circumstances and under those constraints, and of course, obviously also being bound by the general judicial oath um, to be impartial and independent and to decide according to law, if with all of those limitations and constraints, one can produce a judgment that is informed by feminist principles and feminist theory and that either reaches a different conclusion or reaches the same conclusion but infuses different reasoning into the decision, then that's a very powerful argument to suggest that the case could have been decided differently at the time that it was originally made. Can I ask you what your interest in legal reasoning is? Good question. 
I actually didn't have much interest in legal reasoning. I'm a socio-legal scholar, um, and so my main research interest was in the impact of law on people's lives and how people experience law. But when I started doing the Feminist Judgments Project, I realised that I had to become very interested in legal reasoning because the project is completely centred on the process of legal reasoning and the construction of legal reasoning. And so that's really my interest came from the project rather than preceding the project. Some, some theories, particularly formalists and formalist judges might say, well, we're not biased. There's no scope for bias because the facts are the facts. The law is the law, and we simply apply the law to the facts to find out what the conclusion is. So there's no scope for bias, and therefore there's no reason for having a feminist judgments project to try and address or counter that bias. What, what might you say to that? What I would say to that is that I don't accept the story of legal objectivity. So law presents itself as strictly objective as strictly neutral, as unbiased, and you know it has a method, it has a procedure for doing that, which is to find the facts, find the law, apply the law to the facts. But when you look at it more closely, what you can see is that all of those processes, the finding of the facts, the finding of the law, the application of the law to the facts, rest on a set of background assumptions, choices, um, distinctions, categorizations that proceed from the worldview of a very narrow range of people, the people who have traditionally made the law and the people who have traditionally been the judges. And it appears to be objective because that's all that they know. But if you're an outsider, if you're someone who's been traditionally excluded from legal knowledge or legal subjectivity, you can look at the way that the law has been developed and think that doesn't seem right, um, that that doesn't include my experience, that's not objective, that's the, the subjective view of a particular group of society. And so what Feminist Judgments is trying to do is to correct that bias, if you like. So it, it's, it's an argument that the way that the law currently operates is not objective but comes from a particular perspective and is trying to broaden out that perspective and include the perspectives of others who have traditionally been excluded from the processes of legal decision-making and the processes of um, developing the law and to make it more inclusive and, uh, and, then, and really applying to all of humanity rather than only a particular section of it. Um, what would you say to someone who would say, well, it's not really appropriate for judges to be trying to address inequality. That's something which should be done by Parliament through legislation. Okay, well, so first of all, if a judge is making a decision about equality, so um, in many cases the issue of equality directly arises if it's a discrimination case or if it's a human rights case um, that you know judges are, are being specifically asked to um, make decisions about equality so in those kinds of cases obviously a judge has to do that um, and then in other kind of areas then i think that again lady hale has answered this question 
quite persuasively, I think, where she says that equality is a substantive and a substantial central commitment of our system of justice. Um, the it's built into the judicial oath. You know, I would do right to all manner of people um, without fear or favour according to law. Um, that implies that people will be treated equally before the law. Um, you know, the rule of law requires people to be treated equally before the law. And so I think that the business of judging is absolutely um, integrally related to the business of, of producing equality and treating people equally. Um, and so I don't think that it is um, possible for judges to abdicate a responsibility towards um, equality and towards the equal treatment of litigants in their courts, which can also mean, you know, ensuring that the law treats people equally to the extent that it's possible for them to do so. I mean, there are there are limits to that. Um, certainly, in some of the feminist judgments cases, I think judges have found feminist judges have found that the law, particularly in interpreting statutes, um, as opposed to developing the common law, um, simply doesn't give them scope to go where they would like to go, to reach the decision that they would like to reach. The, um, and then all that can be done is to flag the issue, is to say, you know, um, unfortunately this is the result and call on Parliament to ameliorate the position. But in, in many cases there is um, the possibility and if you've got a choice between promoting equality and not promoting equality, wouldn't you rather have the judges promoting equality? Um, and and certainly, as I've said, in the development of the common law, judges have have a wide scope um, to be able to to do that, and that's the choice that they should be making, rather than a choice that they should be abdicating. The um, the American realists were quite notorious for being very sceptical of the things that the judges said and did as being the whole picture. Now, it strikes me that um, some of the motivations for the Feminist um, Judgments Project are sympathetic to those ideas to some extent. So would, would you say that the Feminist Judgments Project is, is in some ways a type of realism? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've actually written about that <laughs> in in a book chapter on, on socio-legal methodology when I was asked to write about the Feminist Judgments Project as a, as a form of socio-legal method. And, and one of the things that I did in that chapter was to um, show the ways in which the Feminist Judgments Project um, can be seen to draw on ideas that coming out of American legal realism. And so certainly you know, some of the sort of legal scepticism of the realists uh, is something that the feminist judgments projects enact. And, and you know, as I, as I said earlier, if it's possible for somebody to produce an equally plausible legal judgment that is written with the same law, with the same facts, as at the same time as the original judgment, then that demonstrates very powerfully that the original judgment, the original decision was not inevitable. Um, and so what we learned through the process was that there are a number of ways in which a judge can make their decision appear inevitable and appear to be dictated by the law. Um, but there are a number of, as I've said, a number of choices underlining that, including the way that the facts are described, the way that, the, you know, the, the level of abstraction or contextualization that is used um, the the understanding of 
um, how the law should be applied to the particular facts, and uh, and and they're all they're all products of choice. Uh, yes, so in, in the realist uh, argument that the judicial, the legal reasoning, or the the judgment that you read conceals as much as it reveals, I think is um, is something that the feminist judgments projects really demonstrate and and follow through on. Well, are there any particular areas which are particularly uh, ripe for feminist judgment writing or areas where feminist judgments are going to have a bigger impact than other areas? Yeah, that's an interesting question and I think the answer to that question probably differs between theory and practice. So feminist legal scholarship is now very extensive and feminist legal scholars have written about and produced feminist critiques and feminist arguments in just about any area of law that you could think of. But in reality, feminist judgments tend to be written in the kind of areas that you would expect that are of particular concern to to women and women's lives. So it's you know areas about family, about reproduction, about um, employment, uh, about criminal law, sexual violence, domestic abuse, um, and you know some of the defences around criminal law, sentencing in those kinds of cases. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there tends to be a focus on, on particular areas, discrimination law, obviously, um, and, you know, law relating to equality, as we saw with the Canadian project to begin with. Um, so there, there does tend to be areas where feminist judgments are more likely to arise. And certainly in, in my research on um, real world feminist judgments and feminist judging, uh, one of the projects that I did was to look at the work of a particular judge in Australia, in the state of Victoria, who had um, had a previous academic career as and was a sort of well-known feminist and then a law reform career, very similarly to Lady Hale, in fact, and then ended up um, as, a, as an appeal court judge. And I looked at all of her judgments over the first three years of her appointment to the court. And yes, she did write feminist judgments, but it was in a small minority of cases and in the the majority of cases that she dealt with, there simply wasn't any scope for um, the possibility of a feminist judgment. I mean, as the court that she sat on, certainly the civil cases that they dealt with were mainly to do with construing commercial contracts and try as I might. It was very, it was impossible to find a feminist angle on those particular cases. Uh, and so, um, yes, in, in practice, it, it will tend to be concentrated in areas that... Um, that concern gender and, you know, where gender is an issue um, in society. I was wondering, um, could a similar approach to the Feminist Judgments Project be taken from the perspective of other marginalised groups, such as um, disabled on the grounds of race or sexuality, or maybe that's already been done? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, that could be done. Um, it hasn't been done as much as I would have liked. And in fact, one of the things that I think I was keen to do after we finished the Feminist Judgments Project was to encourage people to take up other projects. So to do a critical race project, judgments project, or a you know um, disability rights 
judgments project. So there's been a, a bit of that done, not a great deal, and certainly there's scope to do a lot more. So I suppose the first thing that I should say is that the feminist judgment projects have been intersectional judgment projects. So they haven't just been concerned with gender on its own. They've often involved issues where gender is intersecting with other matters such as race, religion, age, um, dealing with younger women or older women, um, disability, uh, sexual orientation. And so the, those kind of intersections of gender and other um, forms of exclusion and you know, social oppression um, have been very much at the heart of, of many of the feminist judgment projects and fem the actual feminist judgments. Um, but yes, there has been, there is currently in Australia at the moment, a project going on, which is called the Deadly Judgments Project, which is looking, writing judgments from the perspective of Indigenous Australians. Um, in the New Zealand Feminist Judgments Project, we actually had a, a whole strand running through the project um, of what uh, the the particular group, so there was a group of Māori women academics and they almost invented a Māori women's jurisprudence and then applied them to judgments and they called them manawahine judgments, which manawahine sort of loosely translates as the, the power of women, but they were very much, they weren't feminist judgments, they were manawahine judgments because they were marrying um, Māori jurisprudential concepts with feminism um, to produce the, the set of judgments within the New Zealand project. Um, there has been a children's rights judgments project. So this was um, a project that was put together by um, a couple of English uh, children's rights scholars um, and brought together people from mostly um, English contributors, but some were from other parts of the world, um, showing how children's rights could be more extensively included in judicial decision-making in a range of areas. Uh, and so, yes, there's, there's huge scope for that to be done um, more generally. I'd like to put, pick up on a point which you made, um, and I, th I think, think I've mentioned, is that some of these judgments, feminist judgments, come to the same conclusion. Um, why, why is that, and, and, and why is it important to give different feminist reasons if the result is the same. Yeah, so, well, I suppose what, one of the things that became very clear to us in the course of the project was that it's not just the outcome of the case that matters. So the outcome of the case, the, the actual conclusion, matters to the litigants themselves. But the reasoning in the case matters not only to the litigants, but to other courts, it could create precedent. It's the thing that people read. It's the thing that law students read. It's the it's the reasoning that, in a way, has the greatest impact or the widest impact um, from a judgment, rather than just the result, which is the the thing that's of interest to the particular litigants. And so, the reasoning is at least as important, if not sometimes more important, than the actual outcome. And it's in the course of the reasoning that uh, a feminist perspective can be brought to bear. So it might be um, the way that the facts are described or understood. Um, it might be about the way that the law is applied to the facts. It might be 
introducing a wider context, knowledge about women's lives, knowledge about um, the the gendered nature of the issues in the case that then um, is incorporated into the reasoning of the court. And so it's a way of bringing in perspectives and knowledge and social experience, human experience, that is has traditionally been excluded from legal decision-making. Um, along those lines, Baroness Brenda Hale has said that as a practical matter, it may be preferable to, to get to the same conclusions that a court can agree on, rather than doing so on feminist principles that might be um, more controversial. What, what would your response be to that? I suppose I have three different responses. So one is that I suppose a key difference between the Feminist Judgments Project and judging in the real world is that in the real world, there are sets of negotiations amongst judges on a collegial court, on an appellate court, such as the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, um, that luckily we didn't have to take into account in the Feminist Judgments Project. Although we did in the Feminist Judgments Project have debates around the particular approach that the feminist judge would take. We, all the judgments were discussed in collective workshops and sometimes, you know, the particular approach that was taken by the judge in their draft judgment was challenged and we would discuss them and so on. But ultimately, it was up to the individual judge or the group of judges who were writing the judgment to decide what they thought was a feminist approach and to um, produce that. And, you know, as editors of the book, we made sure that it was legally correct and did all the things that it ought to do as a judgment. But it was really up to them how they constructed the reasoning. Whereas obviously, in a collegial court, when you are concerned to produce a majority or produce a unanimous decision, then different kinds of negotiations and considerations come into play. So that's, I suppose, one of the differences between the the a, a project of imaginative judgment writing and real-world judgment writing. But the other thing that I would say with regard to um, uh, Lady Hale's comment is that, of course, Lady Hale, um, in many cases, decided that what was important was not to produce reasoning that would take everyone along with her, but to produce a dissenting judgment or a concurring judgment which made a particular feminist point. Um, and so I think generally, and, and talking to um, both Lady Hale and other judges um, who have, you know, real world experience of thinking about feminism in the course of their judgments, is that they decide which cases um, they need to, they really need to make uh, a point and to be different from the rest of the court and to perhaps uh, write their judgment using reasoning that the rest of the court would not sign on to. And one can think of several examples of Lady Hale's judgments where that's been the case, um, or where it in fact is more important in the particular circumstances to take the court along with you to, to use reasoning that the rest of the court might be more likely to um, agree with, uh, to take the lowest common denominator, if you like. So it's a matter of you know, strategic decision making by those particular judges as to whether, which way they jump in a particular case. Uh, we've, we've spoken about um, the lack of neutrality in fact finding and uh, pretty much all, and, and I'm, I'm, I might be corrected, of the judgments written as part of the Feminist Judgment Project are written at the appellate level. 
But isn't there a kind of deeper problem that actually at the appellate, at, at the appellate level, we're bound to some extent by what was found at the trial level, and that might itself be biased or, you know, from a non-feminist perspective. So is there a kind of deeper project that needs to go on with the Feminist Judgments Project, looking at actually the fact-finding at the first instance level? Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting question. And of course, the way that fact-finding occurs um, is another way in which a feminist approach could be influential or could make a difference. Um, some of the so our project was certainly exclusively appellate cases. So it was dealt with cases or rewrote cases from the Court of Appeal, or it was then the House of Lords would now be the Supreme Court. Um, but some of the other projects have introduced first instance decision making, um, both in sentencing and in you know actual decision making. And of course, one of the things that they then have to deal with is is the way in which facts are found. Um, and yeah, I mean that that's that's certainly a, an element of judicial decision making where again there are choices and the judge brings to bear their you know background understanding, their experience of the world, their inherent biases, their unconscious biases. Um, they they have ideas about what. What is a credible story? What is a plausible story? What counts as credibility? All of those things um, can be very important. And certainly, in in my research on um, real life feminist judging, uh, one of the things that I've been looking at is feminist judging in lower courts or at, at first instance, and and you know the way in which the court is managed, the way in which witnesses are assisted to give evidence or, you know, whether they're assisted to give their best evidence or whether they're bullied and traumatised in the witness box um, and as assessments of credibility and, and plausibility are all um, ways in which at the lower court level, at the sort of trial court level, um, a feminist approach might come in. So obviously at that level, Judges are not necessarily writing long decisions. They're often giving extempore judgments that um, have no precedential value. But the the sort of the way in which a feminist approach can be brought in at that level is precisely in the the managing the courtroom and and finding facts. So yes, all of that um, are places where where a feminist approach can make a difference. As, as we know. Um, at least within this jurisdiction, or England and Wales, the judiciary isn't representative. You know, there are certain groups that are hugely overrepresented. Now, does the Feminist uh, Judgments Project add anything towards calls for a more representative judiciary? Definitely, yes. Um, I think that it it shows that a more representative ju judiciary could make a difference to the substance of decision making, as well as um, you know the the representation of people. So the, I mean, there's a number of reasons why we might want a more representative judiciary, and one of them is symbolic, is simply so that people can see themselves reflected on the bench, or that the bench reflects the the broad spectrum of the community that it um, presides over, and that's something where um, you know, the actual content of judgments doesn't matter that much. So that that's a reason why it's important simply to have 
a variety of people on the bench. It's important also because it, it shows that the the legal system is providing equalities of opportunity for, to people from all kinds of areas and backgrounds, which currently it doesn't do. And so that's, that's another reason why um, a, a more diverse judiciary might be important. But there's a, a third reason, which is that it might actually make a substantive difference. It might make a difference to the experience of litigants in court, as I mentioned, in relation to lower courts, or that it might make a difference to the substance of decision making. And I think what the Feminist Judgment Project um, demonstrates is that it can make a difference and a, and a beneficial difference to the substance of decision making um, to have a more representative judiciary. But that implies that the level of the representation is not just of women judges, it's of feminist judges. Um, it's of judges who have a particular um, consciousness or a particular, uh, well, both set of experiences, but an ability to uh, bring those experiences to bear in the development of the law, um, which you can't necessarily expect people um, to do simply by virtue of being women or being from a you know, BAME or have, having some other kind of non-traditional background. Um, so there has to be a consciousness and a commitment there as well. Given that there's inevitably going to be a diversity of outlooks amongst judges, so for example, we might get to the point where a large majority of the judiciary count themselves as feminists in their outlook, um, but there's still going to be diversity of opinion, so some which are going to be not feminists or maybe radically anti-feminists. What do we do about the, that, that diversity? Because you can't guarantee that any case is going to come up before a feminist rather than a non-feminist. Yeah, okay. So, well, I suppose it depends on whether we're talking about appellate decision-making or first-instance decision-making. So, obviously, in appellate decision-making, what's important is the conversations that go on between the judges who are members of the particular bench or the court. And so that as if there is a, a feminist voice in there, then that that is part then becomes part of the argument and becomes part of the conversation as opposed to not being there at all and not being represented at all. Um, and so that I think is the important thing. Um, in relation to first instance decision making, obviously there's only one judge, but of course judges do also talk to each other behind the scenes. Um, they, it might not be in the course of deciding a particular case, but it's in the course of you know, engaging with their fellow judges in the lunchroom or, um, you know, in other kinds of forums. And so, again, being part of the judicial conversation, um, having conversations behind the scenes, uh, influencing thinking, uh, contributing to judicial thinking broadly in that way is, again, um, sort of have, it's important to have it there and better to have it there than to, to not have it there and to have, have it not included in, that, in those kind of conversations. Can I ask you how, how successful the Feminist Judgments Project has been and has it faced resistance? Well, um, it, I mean, it's been enormously successful in, this, in, in academia, in universities. So it's been extremely successful as a teaching tool. A lot of us, um, and I know a lot of people, uh, teach using the Feminist Judgments because it's a really excellent way of, I suppose, demonstrating 
how legal reasoning works, pr producing reflection on legal reasoning, enabling students to see that how, you know, what it would look like if you put feminist theory into practice um, so it can, can help in, you know, courses on gender and law or um, law, gender and sexuality. It can be useful in foundational courses on legal reasoning and, and legal process to, to think about the process of judicial decision making. Um, it can also be useful in um, substantive courses on you know, contracts or torts or criminal law and so on to show how legal doctrine could perhaps be different or could be thought about differently. So it's, they've been very useful in teaching. They've been um, enormously popular in terms of the number of different feminist proje judgment projects that now exist in different parts of the world and that have been undertaken. So there's there's been projects in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the United States, Ireland and Northern Ireland. They did a, a joint project um, that covered the island of Ireland. Uh, there's, there, were, there are a couple of projects going on in India. There's an African feminist judgments project. There's been one done in international law, the Scottish feminist judgments project. So, you know, the, the list goes on. And I'm quite frequently contacted by people in various parts of the world who want to start up a feminist judgments project. And I'm always very helpful you know, very interested and very keen to support people to do that. So it's been very successful from those points of view. Its success outside universities, I think, is another matter. And there, I think, we've met not so much resistance as indifference. Um, so I think that there are, there are certainly a number of judges who have been very interested in the project, have... Um, taken on board some of the lessons of it. And so I've certainly spoken to judges who have said, you know, you really made me think about how I think as a judge and how I write my judgments. And I, you know, am changing my practice or have changed my practice in response to the Feminist Judgments Project. But I think there are many more judges who um, you know, don't see it as having any relevance to what they do, unfortunately. Can I ask um, what you think the key things that a new law student, so a student very new to studying law, what's the most important things they can take from the Feminist Judgments Project? Right. Uh, well, I think that, I suppose there's two things. So one is about legal reason, about judicial reasoning. So as we've mentioned, um, understanding that the way that judgments are constructed is a construction. Um, and so, you know, the judges make choices about how they tell the story, how they present the facts, how they describe the law, and how they then apply the law to the facts. And so what might seem unquestionable and inevitable is not, in fact, inevitable. Um, and and often could be done differently. So it's it's being aware that the authority and the authoritative voice that is found in judgments can be questioned and can be looked at critically um, and, and could possibly have been done differently, you know, with someone but by someone who was thinking about the issues differently. So it's I suppose I want to empower students to be able to have that critical um, and and questioning approach to judgments rather than feeling that they have to accept them as the inevitable conclusion in, in a particular case. 
And then the other thing I think is to be aware because people, as I, again, as I've said earlier, that people have an idea about feminist theory or we can, we can understand feminism, but it's hard, often hard to see how that might apply to law. And so what the Feminist Judgment Project does um, quite well is to illustrate exactly how feminist thinking can be applied to, to law and to, and to legal reasoning. Professor Rosemary Hunter, thank you very much. Thanks for the conversation, Paul. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode. We've had many new colleagues join our ranks in the new year, so I hope to bring their research to this podcast. I'm Marian Ayelski, and I am the research fellow at the law school. If you want to find out more about us or about our guests, click on the links below. Hope to see you again.